0: This week, Garrett Motion stakeholders line up behind competing restructuring proposals. JCPenney files APA with lenders Simon & Brookfield. Purdue Pharma seeks approval of settlement with the United States.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding.
0: And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later, we'll hear an update on movie theater liquidity options with Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher. It's Sunday, October 25th.
1: The First lien Minority Group in the JCPenney Chapter 11 cases filed a statement on Friday regarding the JCPenney debtor's sale motion, plus a limited objection to the debtor's proposed disclosure statement. The statement attaches the First Lean Minority Group's October 14th commitment letter reflecting a $750 million bid for PropCo, which the statement asserts, quote, provides nearly $600 million dollars more value for the debtors' estates than the credit bid proposed in the sale motion. In addition, the Ad Hoc Equity Committee filed an objection and a limited joinder to the First Lean Minority Group's statement, and Liberty Mutual Insurance Company filed a disclosure statement objection, also Friday. The first lien minority group, represented by Aiken Gump, reported holdings of one hundred sixty two million dollars of term loans, one hundred thirty eight point four million dollars of first lien notes, one hundred forty one point five million dollars of second lien notes, fifty nine point two million dollars of unsecured bonds, and fifty point eight million dollars of dip loans in an october first, rule twenty nineteen statement. Bank of America reported the largest amount of holdings with Cetus Capital and Aurelius second and third. The JCPenney debtors had on Tuesday filed their first plan and disclosure statement, along with a sale motion and a draft asset purchase agreement for their proposed transactions with the first lien majority ad hoc group, Simon Property Group, and Brookfield. At a hearing on Tuesday, counsel for the debtors told the court that the quote economic structure of the transaction that has been agreed upon by the parties is frankly different than what was in the letter of intent, where there was a pretty complicated working capital adjustment. According to debtor's counsel, the parties with Judge Marvin Isger's assistant in mediation, quote, resolved those issues, dependent upon this sale moving forward on an expedited timeline. According to debtor's counsel, the parties with Judge Marvin Isger's assistant in mediation, quote, resolved those issues, dependent upon this sale moving forward on an expedited timeline. Counsel warned that, quote, the further out we go, the more difficult it is for the structure to hang together because of potential operating losses and the like.
0: The Purdue Pharma debtors on Wednesday filed a motion seeking approval of a settlement with the United States, the debtors, quote, most significant priority creditor, which has asserted, quote, billions of dollars of forfeiture and other non-dischargeable claims that could entitle it to substantially all of the debtors' distributable value if upheld. The proposed settlement fully resolves the DOJ's investigation into the debtor's quote, past practices related to the production, sale, marketing, and distribution of opioid products and enables a value-maximizing restructuring that might not otherwise be possible. Under the settlement, Purdue has agreed to the entry of a $2 billion criminal forfeiture judgment, which would have the status of an allowed super-priority administrative expense claim. The debtors have committed to an upfront forfeiture payment of $225 million within three business days after a judgment of conviction under the plea agreement is entered. As for the remaining forfeiture judgment, it would be satisfied through the application of a forfeiture judgment credit by the United States of up to $1.775 billion for value distributed under a Chapter 11 plan relating to claims asserted by state, tribal, or local government entities. The U.S. said that it has agreed to provide the offset value for distributions to non-federal government creditors, quote, in furtherance of a global resolution. In addition, the government will have allowed pre-petition unsecured claims not entitled to priority totaling $6.344 billion, consisting of a $2.8 billion civil claim and a $3.544 billion criminal filed claim. The Purdue debtors also agreed to create a public document repository of non-privileged documents produced to the United States. The debtors later reported a consolidated cash bank account balance of approximately $1.303 billion as of September thirtieth, down from $1.345 billion as of August thirty-first. most of which was held at Purdue Pharma LP or PPLP. PPLP's September balance sheet classifies $1.048 billion as unrestricted cash or cash equivalents, $106 million as current restricted cash, and $148 million as long-term restricted cash. About $1.2 million of cash was held at Purdue Pharma Inc. as of the end of September.
1: On Friday, Judge Michael Wiles said that he would approve the Garrett Motion debtors proposed stalking horse bid protections for KPS Capital after declining to do so initially on Wednesday. At that time, he said that it did not appear from the evidence presented that the debtors board had had sufficient time to review the alternative plan proposal and engage with the sponsors so as to make that judgment. So he directed the debtors to do so before Friday's hearing at which time he said he would rule. KPS had improved the Stockhorse bid to two point six billion dollars from two point one and agreed to additional terms. The Garrett Board on Friday, according to Counsel for the debtors, had determined that the KPS transaction was financially superior, and Judge Michael Wiles approved the Stockhorse bid protections. At a scheduling conference Thursday, Judge Wiles denied the Garrick debtor's request to delay consideration until February 2021 of Honeywell International's motion to dismiss the debtor's January 2020 asbestos indemnification claim and validation complaint. Quote, Doesn't the whole case revolve around the claims against Honeywell? This should be put front and center, not on the back burner, the judge said. Alternative plan sponsors Centerbridge and Oaktree and litigation target Honeywell International had on Monday used the Garrett Motion debtors' proposed bidding procedures for the then $2.1 billion sale to KPS Capital as an opportunity to attack the KPS offer. In their objection, Central Bridge and Oak Tree focused on the dangers of the KPS offer and RSA for unsecured creditors and shareholders. According to the Alternative Plan sponsors, unsecured creditor and shareholder recoveries under the KPS valuation and the RSA depend upon the debtors hitting a, quote, home run in the $5 billion asbestos indemnification litigation against Honeywell. Quote, if the debtors strike out, the investor said, general unsecured creditors will have waited for the outcome of such litigation only to receive what is likely to be less than payment in full, and the debtors' public shareholders may receive nothing. Central Bridge & Oak Tree disclosed in a 2019 statement on Monday, aggregate ownership of 9.2% of common stock and 54.9 million euros in total claims, consisting of 2 million euros in term loans and 52.9 million euros in 5.125% senior notes due 2026. Certain investors, represented by Jones Day, later joined Central Bridge & Oak Tree in supporting the alternative plan, with the alternative plan sponsors asserting then that they had together, quote, more than 50% of Garrett Motion common stock. In a 2019 statement, the Jones Day Group disclosed $29.7 million in shares, with members including Bowpost and Cyrus. Garrett shareholders Gabelli and S. Moyo later said and found that they were in, quote, constructive dialogue with KPS and are not, quote, aligned with Centerbridge and Oaktree. In addition, the Ropes and Gray represented ad hoc group of secured note holders disclosed 244.9 million euros of notes, or 69.96% of the outstanding principal. In addition, the Ropes & Gray represented ad hoc group of secured note holders disclosed $244.9 million of notes, or 70% of the outstanding principal.
0: On Monday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued an opinion and order granting in part and denying in part the Puerto Rico Electric and Power Authority's motion for entry of an order, allowing an administrative expense claim for compensation, related to the operating and maintenance, or O&M, contract with Luma Energy, the entity selected to oversee the management and operation of PREPA's transmission and distribution system. In Monday's decision, Judge Swain found that the administrative expense priority for operating expenses are available under Title III, provided that the applicable standards are met. Further, the judge concludes that the relief requested through PREPA's motion is appropriate as long as any administrative expenses are actually accrued and outstanding. However, the judge denied without prejudice the relief with respect to late fees accrued under the contract at this juncture, finding that the Oversight Board has failed to proffer any adequate factual basis upon which the court could conclude at this stage that such fees categorically constitute actual and necessary costs of preserving PREPA. In a reply filed Tuesday in support of its motion to strike certain provisions of the amended plan support agreement, or PSA, between the Promesa Oversight Board and certain general obligation and public building authority bondholders, AMBAC says the Promesa Oversight Board exceeded its authority in purporting to commit more than $100 million of Commonwealth resources without Commonwealth consent or court approval. In a reply filed on Tuesday, National Public Finance Guarantee Corp. asked the Title III court to overrule the responses and objections filed by various creditor groups and grant its motion, seeking an independent investigation into the trading activities of the general obligation and PBA bondholders and whether the trading violated court orders and mediation confidentiality requirements. National says it is, quote, an ideal time to conduct the 60-day investigation because doing so would not delay any plan of adjustment, and says the concerns raised over the trading activity by the creditor groups, quote, are not going away absent an impartial investigation.
1: Top Red Stories last week included, in Marblegate Analog, New York Court of Appeals reverses lower courts, holding objecting minority noteholders' right to deficiency payment survived majority-directed foreclosure. Dissent says majority opinion strikes court of disharmony. Intelsat seeks disallowance or equitable subordination of C band Alliance member SES Americom's obviously inflated $1.8 billion in claims. And AMC Entertainment announces preliminary Q3 results. AMC Entertainment announces preliminary Q3 results, continues to explore additional liquidity sources, may seek in
2: or out of court restructuring.
0: Next. Here is Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead.
2: Well, thank you, Rochon. Hello, all, and thank you for spending your weekend with us. There is a lot going on, most of it, of the earnings variety. Monday, October 26th, there is a sale motion hearing and conditional DS approval hearing in JCPenney. Also, a DS hearing in Gavilan. Tuesday, October 27th, Omnibus hearing in extraction oil and gas. Wednesday, October 28th, hearings in Purdue, Transocean, Jimboree, Foresight, and Chesapeake, among others, and earnings elbow their way into center stage with Tupperware, which, by the way, provides an excellent storage solution for your Del Monte green beans. Del Monte also reporting today as are Entero, First Quantum, QEP, and Parsley Energy, which was acquired by Pioneer Natural Resources last week. Thursday, October 29th, there's a crote hearing, also another hearing for Gavilan. and earnings, we have CNX, Realogy, Royal Caribbean, SM Energy, Avis, and PG&E, among others. And Friday, October 30th, the Sigh of Relief, hearings in Fieldwood, a DS hearing in Chesapeake, and an initial pretrial conference in Neiman on the earnings front, we have MoneyGram, and that is all from me. Back to New York.
0: And now, here's Mark Fisher on movie theaters.
3: Thank you. So I'm going to talk about the movie theater industry today. A lot of them have been forced to shut down because of COVID-19 and as a result been burning a lot of cash. Uh, the industry is fairly consolidated with three theater companies, Cineworld, AMC, and Cinemark, controlling about half of the screens in the U.S. Two of them have warned on liquidity as they deal with large monthly cash burns. Cineworld, the U.K.-based movie theater which bought U.S.-based Regal Cinemas in 2018, is working with financial advisor PJT and law firm Kirkland & Ellis for restructuring talks with lenders, sources told Reorg. An ad hoc lender group is working with Houlihan Loki as its financial advisor and law firm Arnold & Porter. RCF lenders are being advised by FTI. Sources add. Earlier in the year, Cineworld secured a covenant amendment with its lenders that relaxed leverage covenants through December, but in its June report, Cineworld said its forecast shows breach of the covenant in December this year and continuing breach through the end of next year. The leverage covenant is triggered when more than 35% of its revolver is drawn. In May, Cineworld increased the amount committed under its revolver by $110 million to $573 million, but but million, $454 million, sorry, was drawn at June 30th. The company also discussed the potential for an additional $70 million from U.S. and U.K. coronavirus relief programs. At the time, the company said it expects that the additional liquidity would provide it with quote, sufficient headroom to support the group even in the unlikely event cinemas remain closed until the end of the year. However, in June, Cineworld raised $250 million from a new secured debt facility, which it said was from both private and institutional investors. On its call in late September, management, when asked about current liquidity, was noncommittal. They still have the $110 million revolver available, but CFO Nassan Cohen said on cash, quote, it's very difficult to comment saying in the end of June, you can see on the balance sheet, we had $285 million. We are now end of September. Look, we are in 10 territories. It's every day changing. So I really cannot tell you how exactly the level of cash because every day it's moving up and down. But I think if you look really well, we aimed at end of June, and we started to open the cinemas really in July. Now we're at September. I think you can more or less do some modeling and come to some level of liquidity that we have now. So how should we think about cash? Company, in its first half interim report said under its base case, it assumes a gradual recovery from the shutdown with cinemas across all territories open by the end of 2020, returning to emission levels of up to 62% of comparable periods by uh, year end. Under that base case, the group would have maintained headroom against cash and debt facilities throughout the period to December 2021. Obviously, that didn't happen. So they also talked about an, a negative case, which, involves, which involved the second wave of COVID-19 in 2021, affecting several of the group's territories to the extent that further prolonged shutdowns are required, affecting the group performance. Cineworld would require additional financing facilities to operate from early 2021 in that uh, negative case. And that followed the end of the RCF extension. So Cineworld has not committed to a monthly cash burn rate excluding uh, to try and calculate it. If you exclude exceptional costs, swings in working capital and growth cap X, Cineworld burned $205 million of cash in the first half of this year. So if you assume that all that uh, burn happened in Q2 after the shutdowns, that would imply at least $68 million per month of cash burn. It's also worth noting that cash burn excludes a majority of rent since the company was able to defer $130 million out of its approximate $150 million quarterly rent obligation. Cineworld said that it continues to work with landlords to delay rent and the Q2 rent that was deferred. Cineworld would not have to start paying that back until early 2021. So now let's switch over to AMC, which unlike Cineworld did not reshut its uh, theaters after studios pushed out movie releases to next year. However, the company did say that Q2 cash burn has been higher with theaters open than Q2 when theaters were closed. Back in August, AMC said monthly cash burn when theaters were closed would average $100 million. However, in July and August, AMC actually burned an average of $117 million as they began plans to reopen. But burn less than that, uh, burn less than $100 million in September September, ending the month with $418 million on September 30th, down $90 million from the $508 million reported August 31st. Additionally, AMC said that it raised $52 million in stocks subsequent, subsequent to September 30th through a previously announced at-the-market offering program. AMC said it is, quote, actively continuing to explore potential sources of additional liquidity, and these include Additional capital through another $15 million at the market program announced on October 20th. Further renegotiations with landlords regarding its lease payments, potential asset sales, joint venture, or other arrangements with existing business partners, or minority investments in its capital stock. AMC stated that it is, quote, unable to determine at this time whether these potential sources of liquidity will be available to it or, if available, individually or taken together will be sufficient to address its liquidity needs. There is a significant risk that these potential sources of liquidity will not be realized or that they will be insufficient to generate the material amounts of additional liquidity that would be required until the company is able to achieve more normalized level of operating revenues." In the event the company determines that these sources of liquidity will not be available to it or will not allow it to meet its obligations and become due, it would likely seek an in-court or out-of-court restructuring of its liabilities in the event of a future liquidation or bankruptcy proceeding holders of the company's common stock would likely suffer a total loss of their investment. Uh, So that's that's a summary of what's going on with liquidity uh, in two of the largest theaters. Please uh, listen to, on uh, this coming up Friday, we have a webinar discussing um, the, move, well, the the whole movie theater industry uh, dealing with liquidities. Uh, Peter Washkowitz from um, the Head of Covenants will be uh, joining me. So please uh, please listen. Please ask your salesperson for uh, the information and uh, hope you will uh, listen. Thank you. Uh, and back to you, New York.
1: Thanks again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on the site media page. That's reorg.com or iTunes and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe, and we'll see you in a week. Bye.